glad that you're here. If you're visiting with us this weekend, maybe you're from out of town, we're so glad that you're here. You came to church at a theater, and we'd love to hear how you found out about Southbridge. So if you'd fill out your connection card, which you can find in your bulletin, we'd love to hear from you. You can take that filled out card to the first time guest kiosk where we have a gift for you. And Is it too early to say Merry Christmas? Not for me. I start with that around um, November 1st. So 55 days of Christmas for me. And then 310 days of depression. Yeah. Well, I hope it's not too soon because this morning when you leave, we have another gift for you. We have a gift of um, from Southbridge to Southbridge, a devotional that starts now through Christmas. It's written um, by nine Southbridge members, ten entries, and I'm really proud of um, these folks, their work that they've done. I'm really excited about it, so make sure you grab a copy of that when you leave today. And also don't forget, as the announcements told us earlier, um, to uh, not, not forget your uh, dollar offering which will go to helping our first church plant, Redemption Church, in, uh, near Grand Rapids, Michigan. It will help purchase for them a, ch- a children's ministry check-in kiosk. So don't forget those things. So devotional and that um, dollar offering. And this morning we're going to continue and conclude our Trending Now series. And we've had a really good journey together through this, looking at such topics as why do bad things happen, this, the topic of suffering. And these topics were based on questions that were sent in by Southbridge from you, and then the pastoral staff, chiefly Scott, worked through these and came up with, I think it was seven messages around the questions that you entered in. So two messages on why do bad things happen and suffering, a message on God's agenda for sexuality, intimacy, sex, a message on homosexuality, a message on how could God ever love us, um, a message on the besetting sin, what, what do we do about not getting over the sin that keeps, you know, keeps killing us, it feels like, and then a message from our worship pastor, on God and science, or having to decide, is it true they have to decide between faith and reason? And we concluded together that we do not. This morning I had the privilege and I've been asked to share with you answers to the questions related to marriage. And there was a lot of them from you. And I'm going to answer all of them and you'll have no questions at the end of this talk. Because I have been married 13 and a half years. What we're going to do is we're going to look into God's word together and we're going to ask him to speak to us. We're going to ask his word to validate himself. And it does. And so I'm going to ask the Lord right now to help us. Can you pray with me? Lord, for this morning, thank you. Thank you for your love, grace, and your mercy toward us. You are slow to anger and abounding in love. Lord, we're thankful for your word, and we ask, God, that you would instruct us and teach us this morning. I pray, Lord, for each person here, Lord, married, single, divorced, widowed, Lord, God, that you would encourage and equip, challenge, um, confront where you will, that each person will be glad that they came here this morning. So God, I just ask that you would speak. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the questions that were sent in. These are some of them, and I'll also share some of the questions throughout the message. And there's a lot to share, so I'm going to try to speak fast, and we'll see how we do this morning. We'll see what the Lord has for us. Here's some questions. Some were just general questions, general theological questions. What made you, so the you in these questions is God, because we... The, the, the body of Southbridge was posed to ask questions to God. What made you define marriage and who is it for? What is the nature and purpose of marriage? Why does marriage matter? Why did Jesus say there was no marriage in heaven? Specific personal questions, and I think some of these require opportunities for us to hang out. So if you'd like to hang out with someone on pastoral staff, I'd love to be that person to talk through some of these questions. But we can point you to our group leaders, other elders, um, folks in our church, if you'd like to meet with someone else. Here's some of those questions. Who do you specifically want me to marry or be my soulmate? What does my spouse need to solidify their faith? I have a desire to be married. Will that happen? What do I need to do? 
Why would you give me a burden for orphans and a desire to adopt and not give my husband the same desire? What do I do as a Christian wife when my husband's and my dreams seem to always be opposed? What is the balance between following my dreams and even what I believe to be right and following my husband? What should I do if I choose to marry an unbeliever before or after I became a Christian? So general questions and really specific, personal, deep, difficult questions. These are real, and these reflect the heart and lives of the people of our church, wouldn't you say? Real scenarios, real questions. And where I thought I'd start is that sharing with you that there is, there's a growing confusion, confusion on what marriage really is and what it's all about. There's a popular view that's expressed in this statement. I want to show it to you. Culture says this, that marriage is a fluid social construct that has exhibited a wide diversity of forms among different cultures and time periods. That's true. Marriage, therefore, can and should be re-envisioned in contemporary society, and I would underline this, to accommodate people. That is the time in which we live. To accommodate people, that marriage itself should accommodate people and whatever people desire and what they want. This has been demonstrated through real-life experiences. If you went on YouTube, you could click in different kinds of marriages. And about a year and a half ago, I shared with at a marriage at Richmond Events, our, our church did a couple of these scenarios. One was a video of a woman that married herself. In fact, she was on talk shows, and people interviewed her, and just how she had to be true to herself, and she was going to make a stand-up for herself, and she was going to have a ceremony, which she did, and that's also on YouTube, a covenant to herself. When we look at these videos, it's easy to make fun of them, and we shouldn't. It's actually sad. I wondered, though, um, if she ever met someone and married that person, would she have to divorce herself to marry that person? She cheated on herself. Crazy. Another example is a woman that um, really was, loved her community, loved her neighborhood, and was really against what um, the, the change of culture was happening in her community by tearing down old buildings and putting up new things that she felt were not necessary. So she had a ceremony to marry a building. Different person officiated that, and different kinds of people were there. You can watch this on YouTube. This is out here, and it fits with the idea that marriage should be re-envisioned in contemporary society simply then to accommodate people. That is the time in which we live, and that's not just out there on YouTube world. That comes into the church. That comes into the church when our biggest mission in life is, I want to feel good. I want to be happy now. And when I'm not happy, I will seek that which will accommodate my happiness. See, any view of marriage um, has a source of authority dictating such a view. Some use self then. Some use uh, God's word, or at least the parts that they like. Um, some use culture then to justify their view or their definition of marriage. And I was wondering, is it possible then that, it's, is it possible that um, Christians are growing out of touch with what God's word has to say about marriage? Is it possible that Christians are growing out of touch with, with what the meaning of marriage is? The questions were asked, what is the nature and purpose of marriage? See, when the influence of God's word is tuned down in the believer's life, talking to believers here, the volume of the world and culture's philosophies are always turned up. When we tune down God's word, what will inevitably happen is the world's philosophy, the culture's philosophy, who you're around, that gets amplified every time. 
It's true for the life of the believer. We're supposed to walk by the Spirit. But when we turn down the Spirit's voice in our lives, He's pleading with us, asking us, we need to do this. Let's not do this today. There's this pleading. There's this invitation to obedience. There's this conviction that comes along us. We need, to, we need to confess that. We need to ask for forgiveness for this. When we tune that voice down, what gets amplified is, you know what? You need to look out for yourself. You need to take care of number one. You know, you're not really happy. How can you go get happy? Do you see the difference? That's what happens in light of marriage, and that's why it's confusing. That's why we live in confusing times. What happens is we seek to try to encourage one another, and we try to give each other wisdom based on ourselves, and experience seems to always trump Scripture. And so what happens is God's words tuned down. And then our life experiences are the truth. See the difference? So it's really hard when we come to these questions that we're going to cancel out God's word, what God's word has to say about marriage. What we usually do is just rely on our own wisdom. So today what I want to do is do the best we can to look at a few components of a godly marriage. So these are a few components of godly marriage. If you're a note taker, you can write that down. A few components of a godly marriage. And we'll let the scriptures guide us. So the first scripture we'll look at, we've looked at twice already in this series. In the sexuality message and also the homosexuality, the message about that. Genesis chapter 2. So we'll start in the beginning because marriage is at the beginning. And I'm going to read the context for you for the verse that's the most famous part, the most famous marriage verse, which we see throughout Scripture. This is Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. Um, if we, you were in my office for premarriage counseling, you've probably heard this stuff before. And if you were with me in premarriage counseling, we would start right here because we'd start in the beginning. In fact, if you've never done premarital counseling and you'd like to do that in a postmarital context, I'd love to hang out with you. It's my joy to partner with you. We'll talk about God's vision, nature, and purpose for marriage and see if your vision aligns with that. We'll talk about roles and responsibility in marriage, communication, how to fight, because you will, and you probably have. We'll talk about money, intimacy, all these things. I love to do it. So put that in the back of your brain if you've never done it before. Okay, so here's the beginning. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it, which is a proof text that work existed before the fall. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. A good question is this, why did God put the tree there at all? My answer right now as a 37-year-old is this, I don't know. Not very satisfying as a pastor, I guess, for you. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Interesting phrasing about not good because in chapter 1, God made this and it was good, 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 this and it was good. Then the Lord said that he looked upon all his creation and said it's not the best it can be yet. It's not done yet. Hmm. So now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. He brought, brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever that man called each living creature, that was its name. That must have taken a while. In fact, I bet when he got to the fly, he was just being lazy then. I don't know, fly, that's a bug because it's bugging me. Rhinoceros, what's that? I don't know. I just, I'm just coming up with words now. Okay. So the man gave names to the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. I wasn't there, but by faith I believe it's true. But for Adam, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is not bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And here's the verse. You can underline this in your own copy. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Shame comes later. 
I was just thinking about that yesterday. My son, Titus, he's four. Um, we're still doing some potty training with him as there's some delays in his life. And uh, we've been trying um, Thomas the Train underwear. But guess what? When he walks out in his underwear, there's no shame. Shame has to be taught. Okay. Maybe someone needed to hear that today. I don't know. <laughs> the key verse is this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Who, and Scott had asked this two, two times in our series, who was Adam's mother and father that he left? The answer is none. It's like asking, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? If God, I, I, I never met him. If God chose to put that there, but it didn't come from his ma. So the reason why this scripture is here is in the beginning to forecast something for all time. In its pre-fall language, sin had not come into the world through one man's sin. Death had not come into the world by one man's sin. So what we see here, number one, a point for you is this, is the method of a godly marriage. And I'm going to use the phrase godly marriage versus biblical marriage because when we say biblical marriage, which marriage are you talking about? And we'll see some examples later. So we'll talk about godly marriage because this was God's idea at the beginning. A man will leave his father and mother, be netted to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. For this reason, this reason of oneness, this reason of commitment, there's lots of reasons for what's happening here. And then there's a penultimate, there's an ultimate reason, and I'll share that with you in time. So the method of a godly marriage is this. It's one man and one woman. And you'd think we wouldn't have to talk much about that. And I thought we would. I thought we'd breeze through this part. But I, as I was studying, I felt really compelled to spend some more time right here. That marriage before the fall, by God's idea and design, was one man with one woman. And see, what's happening is that that idea is being turned, out, turned on. And what's the idea is that anyone should marry whoever they want, whenever they want, to whoever they want, how many they want, Whatever. Right? The method of a godly marriage by the Lord's design is one man and one woman, a one flesh relationship of one wife to one husband. With every point here, there'll also be a temptation that comes. So, if the method of marriage, of a godly marriage, is one, one woman and one man, what's the temptation? The temptation is this change the method. And that's what we see. We see a changing of methods. So, and something to remember is that when you interact with people about talking about the methodology of God's methodology of marriage, one man and one woman, you will be pushed and pressed on this in these days, even in 2014, about such things. And what people will do if they're Bible knowledge people, if they know the Bible enough, they'll put it back in your face by suggesting something like this. Well, when you look at the rest of Scripture, whose marriage are you talking about? See, those who believe that there should be a variety of marital forms to accommodate people, marrying yourself, marrying a building, these people are smart enough sometimes to often point Bible-believing people to the various methods, forms of relationships found in the Old Testament. Let me list some for you. A man married to several wives. A, man, a married man with concubines. A man with his brother's widow. A man with his brother's wife. A man, married man with his wife and his wife's slave. A man with his father's wife. A male slave with a female slave. A rapist and his victim. A male soldier with a female prisoner of war. Men and women with male and female prostitutes. So when someone says, you know, I just want to do biblical relationships. Well, which one do you mean? So when they say, some, when someone says to you about believing in a variety of forms, they can use the scriptures to justify for them the variety of forms because you see them. So what I like to do is go back to the beginning and talk about a godly marriage. And let me just say this. What, what is described in scripture does not mean it is prescribed. Scott teaches this often in light of context and reading in Bible study. What is described in Scripture does not mean it's prescribed. I'd even add the word endorsed. See, when sin entered into the world through Adam, 
So too did social tensions, reproductive difficulties, disruption of the male-female relationship. A disruption of the male-female relationship led to the objection of objectification of females by males as reproductive commodities. You can read that in the book of Judges, chapter 21. To the objectification of females by males as social commodities. To the objectification of fertile females by infertile females as reproductive surrogates to gain the love and respect of a man. To the sexual abuse of females by males and to the use of power by males to acquire females and then death itself coming into the world. Another result of the fall then led to the creation of the Leverite, the Leverite marriage. These all came after the fall. So when someone says, you know, I just want to have a biblical marriage. Well, whose do you mean? Abraham's? David's? Solomon's? Insert classic mother-in-law joke. Man, Solomon had lots of mother-in-laws. My mother-in-law's here today, and she's awesome. Whose do you mean? See, the only marital arrangement found in the ideal pre-fall world is a one-man plus one-woman arrangement. And this is not a popular view. Hmm? All the other marital arrangements, all the other sexual relationships come as a result of the fallen characteristics of the fallen world. Terrible things. So thus, the variety of the marital forms of the Old Testament cannot be used or the New Testament forms that you see cannot be used to support the notion that alternative forms of marriage do not deviate from the created norm. Put that in your minds. Are you flowing with me? We might think this is not a point at all to have to be made, but it is today. So a common rebuttal is this. So when I'm working on a message, I often argue with myself. So a rebuttal to that would be, Jason, well, I'm going to get you with this one. Why did God bless people who practice wrongdoing then? Why is it not said in Scripture over and over again, don't do this, David, don't do this, Solomon, don't do this, Abraham, don't do this. Why isn't God just coming out so focused on against the kinds of relationships they had? So why did God bless them if they were wrong, doing wrong? The answer is this. The patriarchs were not perfect and were blessed in spite of their imperfections. The rain falls on the just and the unjust loved ones. Hmm? God's word condemns a polygamy to the kings in the book of Leviticus, yet David and Solomon do. God's word condemns lying, and yet Abraham and his sons do. But because he blessed them doesn't mean he's pro that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Does that mean that God discounts his own word then? We'd say, no, clearly over and over and over again, God blesses his children because he is gracious. Not because we're awesome. I remember as a child growing up, and so much looking forward to presents at Christmas. It is a love language of mine to receive them. Actually, if you believe in love languages, I'm all of them. I like all of them. But I remember this notion growing up, um, and I know that um, we're not supposed to talk about Santa because, you know, that causes a lot of arguments and stuff, and I'm not a big Santa guy, but this idea that linked with gifts was, um, have you been naughty or nice this year? How can anyone say, yeah, all year I've been nice? All year I've been admirable. Impossible, right? Hmm. So what if the Lord was a gift giver? What if he was a grace giver based on our performance? No one would be graced at all. Some people say, well, God tolerated 
the sinfulness of polygamy and the other forms because he wanted to see more people come about. He wanted more, children, more people to be born because the world had to be populated. I don't, I'm not, that doesn't satisfy me. I think he tolerated it because he's slow to anger and abounding in love. On a side note, in Scripture, every time people live by another method or of intimate relationships, problems occurred. Hmm. So when it comes to the method of a godly marriage, the wisdom of God saves us from who? From ourselves. So the method of marriage, one man and one woman, the method of a godly marriage. But there's another component. Look at the verse again, um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Can we put that up? Another component here. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now let's look at the king's language of this. Look at the King James Version of the same verse. Can we flip to that one? No? Okay, the king's language of this one says this, that a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Hmm. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave, cleaveth untoeth his wifeeth, and they shall be one flesh. So what's the second point? If you're writing things down, you can write this down. The second point, this is the mandate of a godly marriage. So we have the method of a godly marriage, and now we have the mandate of a godly marriage, which is to leave and cleave. Write that down. To leave and to cleave. So the idea isn't just only one husband with one wife, but the mandate is that it be a husband with a wife, forming a new family unit in commitment. This idea of cleaving, the king's language is probably better than NIV. This idea of cleaving is a committed, unique oneness. You become one. Now, you are two souls. You don't become one soul. This notion of a soulmate that people ask about, I understand that. But you're an individual soul that Christ has pursued. He gave his life, life up as a ransom for that soul. But this idea of becoming one together, so that if we're ever to be torn apart, it causes great damage. Sealed together. This is the mandate, that a man leave his parents. The inverse would also be true then, that a wife would leave her parents and they'd become a new family unit in their committed, unique oneness. We see the same kind of command for individuals to the Lord in the King James Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 4. We see the scripture saying that you need to cleave unto me. Hmm. How's that going? See, what it's like for me is this. Now, I can never escape the Father's love. The scriptures are clear. But sometimes I push because I want to do what I want to do. <laughs> Leave and cleave. You are one. You can't tell. Holding my wife's hands. I remember one of the first times I held her hand. I couldn't tell which hand, fingers were hers and which one were mine. <laughs> Another question that was sent in, though, and I placed it here in light of the idea of leaving and cleaving, was this question. Why does God hate divorce? This question comes from a perspective in a translation of Scripture that's found in the book of Malachi. I don't think we're going to have it up front, right? So I'm going to read it for you. Oh, great. This question is an assumption based off a certain translation of Scripture. The question again was this, why does God hate divorce? Here's the NIV translation. The ESV says it differently. The King James says it similar to the NIV. And I'll read some context for you. Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Next verse. 
As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Now, I'll just keep reading. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and in spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. Next verse. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Some commentators talk that this is just God talking about Israel and Israel being an idolatrous nation worshiping other gods. But the constant use of references back to Genesis, the idea of one flesh and this idea together and this idea of covenant would suggest that he's also talking about something specific and someone specific because it was very common for men just to abandon their wives. Why? Because marriage ought to accommodate the interests of people. This is not a new view. God hates divorce. And if you've been divorced, I want you to hear me say this. God may hate divorce. He doesn't hate divorced people. Implant that in your brain and let it sink into your heart. If I've ever offended you in my zeal to uphold the existing covenant you've had, if I've offended you in my attempts and it's come across as if I hate you because you're divorced, would you forgive me? If a church you've been a part of in the past has seemed to indicate that you are hated because you're divorced, would you please forgive them? Now, why does he hate divorce? Back to the question. There are several answers. One has to do with his mandate of committed oneness. Leave and cleave. And I'll share another reason later. That has to do more with the picture of earthly marriage, what the metaphor is there. I think he also hates it because he knows the great pain that it causes, and it's not what his wisdom suggests, and it wasn't his plan from the beginning. There's lots of reasons why he hates it. In the New Testament, Jesus was asked disingenuously about divorce. He was asked by people that wanted to try to trick him. Subsequently, um, every time people try to trick Jesus, it goes bad for them. Just a little note like that. This is found in Matthew chapter 19 and Mark chapter 10. Your NIV Bible might have a title over that saying, Divorce. I think it's more about marriage than about divorce. The questions are about divorce, but Jesus drives them back to something very different. In fact, the context of Matthew chapter 19 begins with Jesus talking about forgiveness at the end of chapter 18, then it runs into these questions. So for the reader, it's interesting by having forgiveness in your mind. All of a sudden, now you see these questions from these religious leaders asking about divorce. And Jesus gives some answers, and he, not surprisingly, he refers back to Genesis in his answer. So we see this for this reason. A man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. We see it again, and Jesus uses it when he's answering questions about divorce and questions about marriage. A paraphrase of his initial answer about divorce would be this. Why are you asking about breaking up what God has put together? You know the Bible. And they did. Specifically, he says, what God has brought together, let man not separate. You might have heard that at weddings before. Leave and cleave, not leave and leave and leave and leave and leave. And that was the custom, that people would just leave for any and every reason. That was the question that was asked of Jesus. Can a man leave his wife for any and every reason, showing too much ankle, burning the dinner? 
And Jesus points them right back to the beginning. No, there was an idea of leaving and cleaving here. Why are you guys asking about breaking up? I just taught about forgiveness. Why are you asking about that instead of trying to stay together? So then they have a question back to him. Here's the arguing style of writing a message. The religious leaders then asked Jesus, if that's the case then, then why does the law of Moses command that a man give a certificate of divorce when he leaves his wife? Jesus answers their question amazingly. Jesus answered, Moses put that in there because men's heart were hard. You were already doing what you wanted to do, so Moses wrote a law in there in a way to protect women that were abandoned. Hmm. What is described isn't always prescribed. God doesn't command divorce. Why do our friends command that of each other sometimes? Be careful of that advice. Why do our friends command that of one another? See, these folks were doing already what they wanted in abuse to women, so the law looked out for women in that way, that they'd have a certificate because divorce was happening. This was prescribed then in a present sinful society. Another question sent in to Selfridge was this. <laughs> these are heavy, aren't they? Here's the question. What about remarriage? And this one's really difficult and difficult for me. There are many views about remarriage, and I'll give you some scripture to study this week on your own. In fact, what's cool is when Scott was led to have a series about question and answer, the books in the New Testament are written like this often. In fact, there's a letter written to a brand new church plant in Corinth, and this church had lots of problems, and it's because people are in it. And so they wanted to ask questions about marriage stuff and divorce and remarriage. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the whole chapter is about marriage. Divorce, remarriage, when you're married to someone um, who's not a believer, what should you do? So I challenge you and I welcome you to do some Bible study on that for yourself. And it's question and answer, including all these things about remarriage. The scriptures speak to the approval of some forms of remarriage and the disapproval of others. And that might be new information for some of you. Some of you just may have figured, if you're single and you want to, by any way of being single, you might as well get married if you want to get remarried. The scriptures speak to such things. You might ask, well, then what should I do now? If I study the scripture, Jason, what should I do now if, if I'm remarried, but then I come to realize through study that my remarriage was not according to the scripture? And that question is real because it's been a real experience with me. As we've had the privilege of partnering with people and speaking with people and doing pastoral counseling, this is a question that's come about. And so the question is, Jason, am I living in perpetual adultery? Oh. Who wants to have a meeting with someone where they feel condemned? And who wants to meet with someone where they feel like they're condemning? Not me. So I prayed and asked God for wisdom. And I agreed in that moment, in that time, the remarriage was they want to do what they wanted to do. But a covenant has been made. And so I think wisdom and scripture suggest this. I said to this person, um, be faithful in the current marriage. In fact, the law speaks to this. So to give you all the information I can, Leviticus says this, to abandon a second spouse, to go back to the first one, that's an abomination. So God's word speaks to that. But we can just share scripture all we want and stack up the scriptures how we want, but we're talking about real people with real things, not just some theological issue, aren't we? We're talking about real hearts, real souls involved, real, real tears involved and pain involved. But that's my answer to that. Be faithful in the current marriage. Back to the point. A godly marriage where leaving and cleaving has taken place is one that is characterized by commitment and oneness. Till death do us part is the phrase that we say at weddings. Maybe you've been to one. Do we mean that, though? Till death do us part unless it gets really bad, right? Till death do us part unless you don't have jobs. Till death do us part until you do something really stupid. What's the temptation, then? 
if the mandate is to leave and to cleave, what's the temptation? To ignore the mandate. You can write it down. Do what you want with whoever you want, when you want. See, that's the kind of relationships that accommodate people. We like a smorgasbord of options. Hmm. Who doesn't like Golden Corral? So a few things then. The text doesn't say this in relationship to leaving and cleaving. In Genesis, Matthew, Mark, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians 6 alludes to this idea of oneness. And Paul's talking about sexual issues in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 as well. The text doesn't say leave and cleave with just anyone, right? What does it say? To leave and cleave with your spouse. Meaning then, if we're changing the mandate, I'll just be with whoever I want to be. I'll go and act married when I'm not married. There isn't room for acting married when you aren't married. And yet that's what we encounter over and over again in the church, in culture, whatever. So I meet with people often that are in that scenario. God gave marriage as an amazing gift to men and women. And a gift to marriage, and that's sex. Oneness. Leaving and cleaving. And anything outside that violates the mandate. But we will be tempted to simply ignore the mandate. You know what? You've got to try before you buy. That's actually a rude statement to say. I'll never marry someone unless I sleep with them first because we need to see if we're compatible. Are you a man and are you a woman? Pretty sure you're compatible. That's almost PG-13. That's as far as I can go. But this is the stuff. This is human wisdom. You know, you need to be together for a while to see if it works out. Did you know that if you live together before marriage, you're more likely to get divorced? Did you know if you have sex with your, person, your, your fiancé before you get married or your girlfriend before you get married, you're more likely to get divorced? It's a lie. Try before you buy. Got to see if we're compatible. It's a choice. Compatibility is you choose. That's so old-fashioned. I know. <laughs> really old. Really, really old. In fact, it goes back to the beginning. Yeah, but that's so antiquated. I mean, that's the, you know, who did that come from? God, and he is before time old. Why do we have to feel so bad about something being old? Well, God's doing a new thing now. He hasn't said that in Scripture. In fact, throughout Scripture, it's Genesis, Matthew, Ephesians. It's really the same thing over and over again. Times are changing. No, they're not. Right? Since the fall, people have been been in sin. They're not any different. Time is coming to an end. The mandate is also ignored when husbands, write this down, act like sons. Rather than husbands. And I had the privilege of hanging out with folks that experienced that. It's my privilege. The mandate is ignored when wives act like mothers to their husbands and not like wives. I don't know whose fault that is. You can blame the accuser. You can blame our flesh. You can blame the fellas if you want. You can blame the fellas' dads for not teaching them to be a man. It's just where we live. A willing and waiting wife to have a discussion, but the man can't get away from video games. A man that wants to lead but can't because his wife's calling all the shots. Because she thinks if she relinquishes any control, then she'll be harmed. See, what I've come to experience pastorally is that in these modifications of the mandate, it causes actually all involved great pain, anger, insecurity, false confidence. This is not even talking about divorce yet. And then we know the ripple effect of divorce has on friends and family, of course. I know it's terribly painful. 
So also marrying someone but never really emotionally leaving and cleaving from mom and dad causes problems. A husband's attempting to lead as he's being discipled by a man that's older than him in Christ. He's attempting to leave, but his wife has to go ask his dad, her own dad. That's killer. Now, we want wisdom from our grandparents. We want wisdom from mom and dads. But we've not left and cleft if we're constantly referring to dad or constantly referring to mom. Or we're telling our wife, yeah, well, my mom used to do it this way. <laughs> That's killer. She doesn't give a rip about that. Yeah, but my mom puts more salt in the. <laughs> I'm being convic- convicted right now, so. That's something to think about, is if you've never really left and cleft past tense, if you're really still with mom and dad, it's going to cause problems. Who are you going to talk to about that and figure that out? Partner with someone to figure that out. Partner with someone that's wiser than you. That will direct you to God's word. Man, we got to fly here. The Lord is smart in this mandate, isn't he? And so he can be trusted. He's for you. Another component, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. If we were hanging out in premarital counseling, we'd go to all these passages, Genesis chapter 2, Matthew chapter 19, and then Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians is a book that's a letter, actually, written to a church in Ephesus. They had problems, they needed encouragement. The first three chapters are about who we are in Christ, and the last three chapters are about what we do. If we try to do Christian doing without being in Christ, then we're a moralist or a legalist. So it's about believers acting and living a certain way. And chapter 5, verse, 20, uh, verse 21, says this, Submit to one another reverence for Christ. Now look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Not a very popular verse these days. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. I'm going to read out of my copy as you follow that one. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of the body. Verse 31, does this look familiar? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. What is the profound mystery, Paul? But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. There's another component here. So we've talked about the method, the mandate. Here's another component. The mission of a godly marriage. And what is the mission? The answer is this, the gospel. And so what we see here is Paul, who is either widowed, as some believe, others believe that he was never married at all. I'd probably go with the second one, but I wouldn't die for, the, die for that view. Potentially a non-married person, because he tells everybody in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that they wish that everyone could be unmarried as him. Non-marriage, they can be on mission all the time. <laughs> He starts interchanging between Christ and the church and husbands and wives over and over again. Amazing. It's an incredible mystery. So in verse 32, the marriage union is described as a mystery because it's the deepest meaning has been partially concealed, but is now because of Christ being openly revealed by the fact that marriage is an image of Christ and the church. Hmm. So what God had arranged in pre-fall marriage is a foreshadowing, it's like a, a picture, a metaphor of the thing to come, that Christ comes, we celebrate this at Christmas time, he dies for us, he pay, takes the penalty for those that he loves, which is the world. 
And for those who believe in and place their trust in them, they are now in body, they're in the part of his body, part of his family. Marriage is supposed to somehow showcase Jesus and the church, the Father's mission, the Father's love. Wow. This is why the church is called the Bride of Christ. Have you heard that before? We make the eternal marriage known through our earthly marriage, and we do so because the gospel as, as the gospel is mission to all onlookers. So somehow, by the way that I love my wife, and my wife receives and responds to that love, showcases to an unbelieving world that the Father sent the Son, which is exactly what Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17. Father, may they believe in me as, as may they, we be one, may they be one as we are one, and may they believe in me because of my disciples' witness. Lord, help them become one. And so somehow, the next verse says, so that an unbelieving world father will know that you sent me. So marriage ends up being a ministry on mission. And that mission is the gospel. So somehow when we keep forgiving each other, because the best marriages probably have a lot of forgiveness, that speaks volumes to other people. When you're asked, how did you do that? The answer back is, oh, because of Jesus. Hmm. The mission is accomplished then in the way that we love and respond to that love in marriage. So amazingly, marriage is not about you. Oh man, that really flies in the face then of the idea of you need to look out for yourself. Look out for number one. Marriage should be an accommodating idea. I've been to lots of weddings with the privilege of being a pastor. Performed several weddings now in my time here, eight and a half years here and a few before moving here. I attended my own wedding, of course. Isn't it interesting when people say this to the bride, it's your day. This is your day. This is all about you. I'd actually like to say something back to that. No, it's not. It's God's day. And when I meet with a couple to do premarital counseling, we're talking about the wedding. What I say this is I lean forward. They're not usually as excited as I am. And I lean forward and say, we're going to blow this wedding out. We're going to blow the gospel out. Okay, we were thinking about just having a party and a DJ, but that sounds okay. No. The wedding day is, is God's day, a day to glorify God, to make him known, to make his faithfulness known, to make his sacrifice known. And so is every day after the wedding day. All the days are his day. Your marriage is, not, your marriage is then to be a ministry on mission. And when this happens, you'll find unity and a contentment and joy that is from the Lord. Think about the method again. Remember what the method was? One man and one woman. Think about the method then in light of the mission. Since marriage is intended to be a mirror of the faithful relationship between Christ and his church, that would mean that affairs or uh, the taking of several partners implies a non-committal idolatry, actually a polytheism. Method in light of mission. By suggesting that we can distribute our covenantal affections toward just anyone. Hmm. A husband and a wife are to be faithful to one spouse as we're to be faithful to one God. It's so offensive when a man tells me about his previous two wives and talking about his third, I just never thought I could love someone like, you know, as much as I do her. Well, that should be offensive to her because there might be a fourth one then that you never could, never could imagine loving that person as much. Any other intimate picture perverts this picture and thus obscures our view of the nature and character of God. Your marriage isn't really only about you. There's a mission to marriage, and that's the gospel. And when we do is we just want to make it about ourselves. So how does the mission of making the gospel known through your marriage actually happen? Good question. 
It's going to be expressed then while performing your roles and responsibilities through spirit-enabled love. Let me say this then. A husband and wife are equal in our image of God. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says that we're heirs together in the grace of life. Equal in value, different in roles and function. Equal in, ver- in, in worth, different in responsibilities. And when adhered to, we succeed in marriage every time. The tough part comes when you saw this in Scripture. Husbands are to love their wives like Christ loves the church. How did Christ show his love? He sacrificed himself for her. The hard part comes, how can the wife do her job when the husband doesn't do his? It's really hard to love someone that's not doing their stuff. It's hard to perform in responding to love when love's not there. Isn't it, ladies? No one will answer, yeah. The roles of a husband and a wife are rooted in the distinct roles of Christ and his church. God means then by marriage to say something about his son in the church. By the way, husbands and wives treat one another. When sin entered into the world, it ruined harmony, it ruined the harmony of marriage, not because it brought in roles and responsibilities. That's something theological you need to hide in your heart here. Sin didn't create these roles. It ruined them and distorted them and made them ugly and destructive. See, some people have this view that once sin came in, now there's husbands and wives and they have these jobs and stuff. No, husbands and wives stuff existed before sin. A husband role that is clearly defined, to love like Christ, to lay down your life like Christ, to serve your wife, to protect and to provide. This is what Jesus does for the church. This is what the scriptures say here in Ephesians 5, to nurture it. A wife's role that is clearly defined, to receive and respect your husband, or to honor and affirm leadership and help carry it through according to ability and giftedness. We see all that in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord made a helper suitable for Adam. What's so cool about roles and responsibilities, I think, is this, is the things that God asks husbands and wives to do are ultimately found in him. So there's no demeaning of a wife when a wife is called a helper because God calls himself a helper. Old Testament, New Testament, book of Hebrews. Isn't that cool? It's not lesser than. It's different than. A husband is not a wife, and a wife is not a husband. But we live in a time... Oh, wants to see that change. Huh. Let me just say this about submission too. A husband does not take the place of Christ. Submission does not mean that the husband's word is absolute. You probably don't know this, but sometimes your husband is wrong. Don't tell anyone. Only Christ's word is absolute. The word of the Lord endureth forever. No wife should follow her husband into sin. Because you can't do that in reverence for Christ, which was what was said here in Ephesians chapter 5. You can't do that in reverence for Christ. Submission does not mean not having a voice, not having influence, not saying no to wisdom. A husband would be a great fool not to seek these things from his wife. It is a partnership. It is one of one, but there's specific roles and responsibilities. A good Bible question would be this. What about mutual submission? Jason, the first verse you read said this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Good question. (laughs) You could ask, isn't the command of mutual submission in contradiction then to the roles of a husband and wife? Some people pitch this, some theologians. I would say mutual submission doesn't mean submitting in exactly the same ways. A strong, godly marriage sees to it that a husband and wife both abide by given roles then demonstrate Gifts, strengths, talents, abilities. Mutual submission does not always look the same for every person, but it is submission. Okay? So what's the temptation? Man, we gotta fly. What's the temptation? To repurpose the mission. 
Make marriage about personal goals and fleeting happiness and achievement. Or change and ignore the roles. Eradicate gender altogether. Because you know the Bible says this, in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew or, uh, Jew or Greek, slave or free, you know. That's bad Bible study. The context of that Galatians passage is about that salvation is available to all people. Males, females, Jews, Greeks, slave or free. Not that there aren't males and females anymore once Christ died and rose again. Because the beginning says God made them male and female. Hmm. So what we see now is a time to accommodate people's wishes is that we try to change things, eradicate gender altogether, change roles and responsibilities, say that those don't exist, say that headship doesn't exist, even though it would be a great blessing if it did, by the way, this is defined by servant leadership, sacrificial leadership. Of course, that's abused by some fellows, especially people that grew up maybe in church, in certain kinds of churches, they think that headship means that they're always right and that you're going to do what I say. No service, no sacrifice. That's not love. That's not being like Jesus. You know. So another question that was sent in. What should I do if I'm married to a non-believing spouse? How can we live on mission if only one of us is in Christ? That is a noble and honest question. And for those that I know that are in such a scenario, I, I pray for God's grace to be tripled to you. For our single parents... For our singles that have been abandoned by a spouse or have lost a spouse because of death, I pray for, I'm praying for you that God would grace you amazingly to do well. And I think he does. The question again is, what should I do if I'm married to a non-believing spouse? Or how do I come to the mission if my spouse does not follow Jesus? Again, 1 Corinthians 7, study this this week, talks a lot about it. But I'll share one scripture with you, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Can we look at that? Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your own husbands. We just looked at this. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. 1 Corinthians 7 alludes to the same. If anyone is married to an unbelieving spouse, husband or wife, 1 Corinthians 7 addresses, stay with them if they want to stay with you. There might be a sanctification that comes to them, not meaning that they're going to be saved because you're saved, but they could, God could lead them. And it makes the marriage holy because you are in Christ. And the children, the marriage and having these children, they're not just um, children of unwed parents. They're not children of un, uh, a person, unholy parent. They are children of a, of a holy marriage because you are in Christ. Is what that passage is just talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. What should you do, spouse that's a believer, married to a non-believer? Just live on mission. Ask God for help in your role. And we'll just pray. I bring other people to pray with you and pray. we'll pray for your spouse. You can trust in the Lord. He's spoken specifically to you through his word in that scenario. Okay? So there's a mission. There's a mandate here. There's a method. There's temptations to all of these. How does the mission of making the gospel known through your marriage actually happen? It's going to be expressed while performing our roles, as I said earlier, through spirit-enabled love. There's another component then to marriage, one that everyone thinks they have, to hand, they, that they have a handle on. Here's the component. It's the motive of a godly marriage. The motive of a godly marriage, and it's God's love. What was God's motive in sending his son? Does anyone know this verse? Um, John chapter 3, verse 16. Say the line, the first line of that verse. For God so loved the world, his motives, because he loved, he sent. And we see the same in marriage. Now, there's no command in Scripture about wives loving husbands. But we know it's true, don't we? Because sometimes the Bible, the Bible does say this, love your enemies, and sometimes your husband feels like an enemy. 
The motive of a godly marriage is love. Just as the God the Father's love was his motivation for sending his son, so too is the love the motivator for a godly marriage. So a, a definition of love that you've heard at Celebrate before is this. It's a choice to yield to another's best interest. So when someone meets with me, just so you know, heads up, and says, I've fallen out of love with my wife, then I would say, That's, you, you don't even know what love is. You're saying I'm unchoosing to yield to my wife's best interest? That's anti-mission. That's anti-God. What you probably mean is this. I used to like what my wife does for me, but she's changed, and now i found someone else. Because I think marriage should accommodate whatever my desires are. Love has come to mean lots of things. I love mint chocolate chip ice cream, and I love my wife. I just now said the same word to modify two different things. What a demeaning thing about my wife, then. And yet there's probably people here that love ice cream more than they do their spouse. Love is a choice to yield to another's best interest. That's exactly what God demonstrated toward us and that while we're sinners, he presented Christ, his son, to die for us. And it's that kind of love, especially husbands, you've been called on to do. Love your wife. Yield to what is best for her. That's sacrificial, isn't it? This is unconditional love and it only comes from God. It is a love that says this. Now watch it here. There is nothing you can do to lose me. Mm. Except for, that's a condition, right? If then. This kind of love that we see here from God, I'm so glad that God loves us with this kind of love. Because if it was based on my performance, then I'm fall, he's falling out of love with me all the time, isn't he? But his love for me is not based on my performance. It's based on his motive, his character, and it's the same in marriage then. My love for my spouse isn't based on her performance. And her love for me ought not be based on my performance or I'm out. I offend her way more than she offends me. I know that. There's nothing you can do to lose me. This love will come as God's character is developed by his spirit within those following him. What's the temptation then? To confuse the motive. To change the motive from love to pride, selfishness, envy, jealousy. There's lots of expressions of love, of course. There's lots of misunderstandings about love. This is why someone can say, I fell out of love, or I now love this person more than I could ever love a previous spouse. No. What you meant is you like what that one does for you. And if that one doesn't do it for you anymore, you'll find another. I don't know what happened. You know, we were just friends at work, and she was just listener, you know. <laughs> I don't know what happened. He's just so, he's so kind and giving, and my husband just doesn't. So another, a few notes here. Some warnings. Usually when men want to get married, their vision and their motive ultimately is that they want to feel good. And their plan is that they don't want their wife, their woman to change. And when she does change, because she does get smarter, life experiences come upon her, her body will change. Things happen and things change. He thinks that he's being uh, lied to now. You've changed. Most women when they get married want a man to change. She likes the things that he does, some things that he offers, but the idiosyncrasies that he brings to the table, she'll get those taken care of. And guess what? Those things aren't changing. Hmm. So what happens is that in light of this truth, and these things are a part of us, fellas and ladies, it's our version of love that can propel us through to accomplish our roles, which then accomplishes the mission for the glory of God so that others might get saved. See? If I just make it about my wife's idiosyncrasies or that she's changing and I have a love about um, liking what she does for me, then what happens is I can quickly take that love. That's not love. 
So a true yielding of love, a yielding to another's best interest, a true version of love, can get us through those disappointments. <laughs> so a conclusion. And I thought that this was the, one of the most tender questions that was sent in. Why is marriage so hard? That question kind of, that's like a gutting we have folks that long to be married. I pray for the members of our church that are single. I pray for them that God would cause them to walk in purity. I know that many of them want to be married. I want them to have what they want. God's into marriage. I pray that there would be no substitute for a godly spouse. Because this is a lie. Someone's better than no one. That's a lie. Because there's a lot of wrong someones. So I pray for our singles. And then for our married folks, we're just walking through this week through our membership and praying for every marriage that's represented on there. In light of this question, why is marriage so hard? And the answer is trite and unsatisfying. And this is the answer. Because people are involved in it. Marriage is a sanctifying covenant circumstance. God will sanctify you through it. If you're not being sanctified, then it's probably your spouse that is. Because it's hard. The Lord can be trusted with all these things. His method, his mandate his mission, and the motive. We can press in on these things, and what God will do is do a great work in our city and in our world for his glory. So I want to offer you this. If marriage is so hard right now that you don't know what to do, there are resources for you. We can point you toward resources. Get in touch. You can get in touch with me if you want, or any of our staff or whatever, or your group leader. There are resources available. If you'd like to do postmarital counseling, but of premarital nature, I'd love to do that with you. If you want to speak with a Christian counselor that's trained and is on the same mission that we are, we can give those resources to you, okay? There's too much at stake to quit. There's too much at stake. Okay, I wish I could say more. There's so much to say. But our church will be as strong as our marriages. If you're wandering, ladies, if you're wandering, fellas, and you're married, just, you know, come back. There'll be grace and mercy. There'll be con- there's always consequences when we do stuff. But, okay? If you've defined yourself by the losses you've experienced, by divorce or multiple divorces or abandonment by people that have had affairs against you, that's not your identity. That's not who you are. Be comforted. Okay, that's it. That's it for this hour. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for your love and mercy and faithfulness to us even when we're faithless. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your word. And God, if I have said anything that is not ultimately in tune with the various aspects of marriage, these things, God, would you help everyone forget it and correct me and change me and help me know how to speak true? Lord, I pray for the marriages represented in our church, God, that you would make them stronger than ever that people would trust in you, in your method and mandate, in your mission and the motive, God. For those, Lord, that have been not acting loving, God, that you would encourage them to, to, to walk by your spirit in that way. Lord, I pray for our single folks. I, I love them so much, and God, I want them to walk in wisdom. I want them to have what you want them to have if, you're, if you want marriage for them. And Lord, I pray, God, that this desire wouldn't be the overarching desire over living on mission for you. 
Lord, would you grant them patience and peace? But if, Lord, if you would be glorified by it, would you please provide a loving, godly spouse? Lord, the days in which we live in are no different than the days of old. And God, we're just so tempted in every way to walk away from these things that you've laid out so clearly. And God, would you help us? Help us to demonstrate a grace and a boldness with truth and a boldness with grace and with people in these various scenarios, God. Thank you. Thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray and we trust in you. Amen.